our Lord Jesus Christ uh, brings us to this time in our gathering today to hear his voice from his word. And I hope you'll notice as we go through the passage today, in so many ways the Lord has brought parts of the service together in, in, uh, in a common way from uh, listening as Leard was praying for the persecuted brothers and sisters as we were singing praises uh, and exalting the Lord our creator um, and uh, just a lot of different ways the Lord has already been working that fit in even with the passage we look at today. Pastor Stephen has been taking us through the book Hebrews and he and I talked it over and uh, we uh, came to work this out so that I would continue on with uh, our study in Hebrews. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. If you're getting familiar with your Bible, it's uh, toward the, oh, I don't know, probably the last quarter inch of your Bible there. Don't be afraid to use your table of contents. And I was especially thrilled as we were singing uh, the Lord will crush the serpent's head, and we were learning about that in the six to nine-year-old class, um, that, that great joy and that great promise. So we're in Hebrews chapter 2, and Lord willing, <clears throat> while I'm going to read verses 10 to 18, uh, Lord willing, I'm going to break it into two parts for this Sunday and next Sunday, because the entire passage, 10 to, verses 10 to 18, really hold together with some common themes. And as I read this, I want, I want you to listen and follow along in your Bibles. It might be a different translation, but it be common enough. I'm reading from the ESV. I want to ask you this question, what's the impression it leaves with you about the Lord Jesus. What's the impression it leaves with you about the Lord Jesus? So Hebrews 2, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. What a great Savior. And I don't know what impression it left with you that you might put in a singular phrase or thought or sentence, but certainly the impression is strongly there. This is a Savior who is bound to us. This is a Savior who has knit his life with us. And what we're going to see, too, this is a Savior, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, who has come to minister to us because this is what the Father wants for the people that he is calling out for himself. Now, up to this point in Hebrews, and as Pastor Stephen's been taking us through this, I mean, the book of Hebrews starts off with this great declaration that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. He holds the universe by the word of his power. He's building a case about who the Son of God is. But by the time we come to this passage, verses 10 through 18 here in chapter 2, there is something he is driving home to us that in all of the darkness and evil and corruption and rebellion and hostility and hatred of our lost humanity, it is genuine humanity that Jesus has taken on but without sin. And the author in Hebrews, as the Spirit of God writes through him, makes that point very clear time and again. He takes on human nature, but without the sin nature. A lot of times you think, well, you can't be really human unless you have the sin nature. No, it's the other way around. Frankly, from God's original design, we are all subhuman, (laughs) at least when we're born. Because we're born with this nature of rebellion. That was not the original design of man and woman in the image of God. There was no sin nature. Jesus comes, takes on human nature. And we look and see, as we look at this passage here, the great way that Jesus Christ has been sent by the Father to reach into our lives. Now, I'm going to give you five descriptions that we'll look at, and I'll cover two of them today. But this is how I describe them. Uh, The last three might change between now and a week from today, uh, as I think on it more. But so far, this is at least how the other three will be. But here's the five. We're going to see him as the perfect rescuer. The perfect rescuer. I could say the perfect savior, but sometimes we'll use words like that, and we're so used to using them, we lose the picture. We lose the image. And really, the word savior in both New Testament and Old Testament carried the idea of one who rescues or delivers. Perfect rescuer. Second, we're going to see that he is the devoted older brother. Now, we don't often talk about that, but we're going to see how that picture comes out here the devoted older brother. He is the conqueror of death. He is the tender-hearted priest. And he is the fellow sufferer. There are some 300 different titles that are attributed to Christ in various ways throughout the Bible. And really, these, these various titles that the Spirit of God 
brings to bear and brings before us is so that our our picture and our image and our joy and delight in Christ just keeps expanding all the time. So we're going to just see that here are some of the descriptions he gives for us. So we're going to look at Jesus as the perfect rescuer and the devoted older brother. And let's get a little of the background here for a moment. Hebrews means these were Jewish believers. They were under pressure. They had already gone through suffering before, and they had endured well, but now the suffering has come back, and they're starting to waver. This underscores the fact, again, how we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who really suffer oppression and persecution in about 55 nations in the world. And Voice of the Martyrs sees the trends. It's going to get up to about 60 nations. I was reading in Matthew this past week. Jesus says to his disciples, all nations, all nations will hate you because of my name. I looked for a footnote in the study Bible that would say, except for the United States. I might have the wrong study Bible, but it wasn't there. By the mercies of God, I think he is giving us forewarnings to prepare our hearts and souls. And looking at Hebrews and realize these suffering believers had stood well, even rejoicing that their property was confiscated. It's an amazing statement. They counted a joy that their property was confiscated for the sake of Christ. But now the pressure is increasing again. And some of the pressure was from zealot Jews who were saying, just come back to the temple. Don't make Jesus the only thing. Come back to the temple. We'll see that unfold too in Hebrews. That as the pressure mounts, now even though they've stood in the past, they're beginning to waver. There's great danger. So I bring up again about our brothers and sisters in Christ and other nations. They are not heroes. They are clay pots like the rest of us. And some of you haven't yet experienced praying with us as believers together on Wednesday nights and holding in your hands one of those handouts of one of the nations where our brothers and sisters are persecuted. You haven't had that fellowship yet of really joining with us as we pray for them, that to them is the greatest treasure to know they're not isolated and they're being prayed for. So the pressure is on here, and part of the pressure is, at least now coming from the uh, zealot Jewish people, is what kind of Savior is this that goes through sufferings? We're looking for an exalted Savior. This thing about him suffering, it's scandalous. To the Jews, that was scandalous. To uh, the non-Jews, what the Bible calls the Gentiles, it seems like a foolish message. And you've encountered that if you've shared your faith. You've encountered that kind of response. This is nuts, this kind of thing. Like, God had to send a redeemer because I'm so sinful. That's ridiculous. That's how the non-Jews respond. The Jewish people, they understand about, they have at least their Old Testament, we call Old Testament, their scriptures say, well, no, we know we're sinners, but when the Messiah comes, he will just come in exaltation. He doesn't have to suffer for our sins. We'll take care of that ourselves. 
So you have one of two types of attacks on this. So that's the background. What kind of savior has to suffer? And that's some of what we're encountering here. And so the author of Hebrews, as the Spirit of God is writing through him, is moving to uncover and and display and uh, help us see the greatness of a Savior who has bound himself to a sinful human race. It's, It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's filled with hope. So let's look, first of all, just look at verse 10. Now, verse 10, it's very interesting when you look at it, takes us all the way from the original creation coming from God's hand and takes us all the way to the new heavens and the new earth when it talks about coming to glory. And it puts those two bookends here. And so let me take us through the verse here. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, there's a lot of mystery here. Obviously, the one he's talking about for was fitting for whom and by whom all things exist. He's talking about the Heavenly Father here because then it's going to point from the Heavenly Father, bringing many sons to glory, and then using Jesus for that goal here. Now, first of all, he's talking about bringing many sons to glory, and we want to get a a correct picture here in our minds that Heavenly Father, in in eternity past and in his counsels of love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, set his heart to save sinners calls it his electing grace, his choosing grace, that he determined he would lay hold and choose for himself sinners out of every nation and tribe and ethnic group, every land, and he would choose them for himself in his great love, guaranteeing that his plan would go forward in redemption. And not only bringing the sinner to Christ, but also with the goal of not just having them cope and get through life. His goal is to get them and bring them all the way to glory. And glory, not just the idea of getting to heaven, but getting them to that place that was lost in the original creation, where glory turned to shame. He is bringing them all the way where the glory and majesty of being in the image of God, recreated now in the image of Christ, will shine forth. Jesus says, I want those you've given to me to be with me in heaven where they can see the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world, meaning he is the eternal son of God, but also that they may share in that glory. You know, when we have... When we have those moments where we actually say the right thing, (laughs) we actually do the right thing, we actually 
respond the right way. It's just a taste of how it'll be when the glory of Christ is there upon us. We will no longer have uh, evil in our flesh that we're fighting against. We won't have a desire to sin. We couldn't be tempted to sin. And in fact, we, would be, we will be totally unable to sin. That's astounding. And the Heavenly Father says, that's my goal in bringing, bringing many sons to that point of glory. It's not just, well, I'm going to heaven. Oh, no, it's so much more than that. It's the glory of Christ that makes heaven so wonderful and sharing in that glory. Now, he makes a statement here. So here's the Heavenly Father. And notice in the opening phrase here, at least this is, the wording could be various ways with other translations. For it was fitting. Now, this is a word. He is making a point, And he's speaking particularly to those of a Jewish background. They're saying, this is not how God would do it. And the author is saying, no, this is fitting because meaning this is exactly how our God has done it. It means this comes from the very nature of God. It wasn't that God the Father, after sin occurred, thinking, well, what are my options of what I could do with this? And maybe you've heard people say, well, why does it have to be this way? Why couldn't it be another way? And... Basically, what the Holy Spirit is saying, it's not possible for it to be another way because this is who our Heavenly Father is. It wasn't that the Heavenly Father had several options and this is the plan he chose. No, this comes out of the very nature of who he is. You know, like if I, Mark Servo, do you play piano? No, okay. So if I said to you, could you just get up here and play like Ethan? Okay, well, Mark, you're just being stubborn. Just think of it as a new option, okay? <laughs> well, it, Mark would say, no, it's not me. It's not like that's one of my options. It's not me. This is what it means when it says it was fitting that the Heavenly Father would do what he's done with the plan of salvation. It comes from the very nature of who he is. Let that demolish any notions, any ideas that the powers of darkness plant, that the world plants, that your background plants, that your own flesh plants, that, um, well, the Heavenly Father is sitting back there kind of with his arms folded, and Jesus says, I will come and smooth things over with the sinners and with the Heavenly Father. Now, what the Holy Spirit is saying, this is coming from the very heart and nature of who the Heavenly Father is. The Heavenly Father, out of his very nature of love and compassion and counsel, would say, I will send my beloved Son, and the beloved eternal Son of God says, and it will be my delight to go and do the will of the Father. That's a powerful Just that little phrase, it was fitting unfolds for us the wonder and the beauty of the Heavenly Father's work, but he goes on here, that he should make the founder of their salvation. You might have leader, pioneer, various ways it can be translated. We don't have 
We don't have a word in our language that quite captures it all. And maybe even the word in their language, you kind of had to see how it was set up. It means one who leads, guides, or goes before and identifies with the people he is leading or guiding. It's this idea that there is one who initiates and experiences and completes for those under him what the mission is all about. So why do I use the term rescuer? Well, I was thinking this over. And you, if you come up with a better word that fits for you, use that word. But here's why I think of rescuer. If you go on vacation and you're off the coast of South Carolina and you, you know, rent a sailboat and you get a couple miles offshore and then a crazy wind comes up and you flip over and now you're in distress and people can see it, who initiates the rescue? Not you. The rescuer does. And we've seen the pictures, you know, the uh, Coast Guard cutter or a rescue boat comes in, the patrol boat, or maybe the Coast Guard um, helicopter swoops in. We've seen it with uh, the rescue team from the helicopter, and here's one of the guys with his scuba gear, and he dives in, and he is in there. We've seen rescues like that even here in the wilderness where someone goes in. One of our own EMTs, we had, there was a, a couple of years ago, a man fell off Panther Mountain. He would have died, and the rescuer, the EMT, he had to get in to work his way down to where this fella fell. And he was right in there with him. And he was working for over an hour, exhausted, all his supplies in his pack. He was in there in the midst of the suffering. This is what the rescuer does. This is what the leader does. Now notice, let's suppose then the patrol boat comes and they, uh, they pull you out of the water and they get you on the uh, Coast Guard boat and they say to you, wow, you're safe now. And uh, this is where you'll spend the rest of your life now is on the patrol boat. No, I don't think that's what happens. Now they make sure you get to shore. They make sure that you get what you need. Maybe the Red Cross comes in. Maybe a social worker to find out what resources have to be lined up. Uh, maybe the, uh, probably the ambulance will be there to make sure that you can get checked out. And the goal is to get you safely home. That's the goal. Now he says... The Heavenly Father's plan was to perfect this rescuer through suffering. Now, the word perfect, uh, we might think, well, was there something imperfect about Jesus? It wasn't that he was imperfect and he had to be perfected. He was perfect and glorious, but there was something more that he would experience in his humanity. Again, maybe I can explain it this way. All the illustrations fall apart, but let's take it this way. Let's say one of our contractors decides time for a new truck. You order the new truck. It comes basically, except for the recall notices, basically it's perfect, at least for the first 20 minutes or so. But anyhow, you get your new truck, and it's basically what you would call perfect. But then... You add on the accessories, the locking toolbox, maybe you add the heavier suspension, might be a number of other modifications you make, setting it up so that you can do hands-free talk on your cell phone. Now, it went from perfect to really perfected for what you need. It could be the same way. Someone could take a composer and arranger, could take uh, one of Beethoven's uh, concertos, 
and could work with it. So instead of a full orchestra, it's arranged and adjusted for an eight-member ensemble. Well, there wasn't, it wasn't that Be- what Beethoven did or Tchaikovsky did or whatever was flawed. It's been perfected for a special means and use. So when we see that, the Heavenly Father called upon his perfect son to take on the perfections of this mission of saving sinners. And here's what's amazing, that he would be perfected to be our Savior through suffering. If you look at your verse, I hope you have your Bible with you. I'm going to do a little commercial here. (laughs) Somewhere around 20 years ago, people stopped taking their Bibles to church. And around the same trend started happening, churches got weaker on doctrine. So I hope you always have your Bible with you, because it's not what I say, it's what the Word of God says. And I've been corrected more than once from, by the Word of God, by somebody else sharing it with me. Look at the verse here. It says in verse 10, perfect through suffering. It actually is a plural word, perfect through sufferings. So that he experienced various sufferings. John chapter 7. His own brothers and sisters who not yet believed in him mocked him and said, hey, listen, if you want to be a popular religious leader, you need to go to Jerusalem and do some miracles while the feast is going on. That's when the crowds are there, if you really want to be successful at this. Jesus, that was just a glimpse. That's what Jesus was living with. They don't realize they're talking to the eternal Son of God who has taken on flesh and is dwelling among them. They don't see that. All they think is, this is our older brother. He's becoming popular. Hey, you want to be popular? Go do more miracles at the feast. That's how you get, really get ahead. That's how you draw, you know, get the crowd in. Because they did not yet believe in him. Jesus lived with that. Jesus lived with, Jesus lived with Simon Peter. If he wasn't available, I would have been the one. Anyhow, he lives with these disciples. Lord, how many times do I have to forgive somebody if they come back to me and say they're sorry and they ask me forgiveness? How, I'll tell you what, Lord, I think I'm getting it. I'll forgive them seven times. Jesus, that's good. Actually, I'm aiming more for like 70 times seven. Let's go for 490. That's going to be hard to keep track of. I guess, oh, I get it. I should just keep forgiving. <laughs> Jesus working, working with the the disciples, and tasting the anguish, struggling, his own physical exhaustion. He's asleep in the back of the boat in the middle of a storm because his body is so exhausted. Goes through all these various kinds of sufferings. For this reason, and he's perfected in this way, every suffering where sinners need a Savior who can comfort them in some measure, in some way, Jesus has tasted it in his soul. You know, something we don't think about, you know, a lot of his contemporaries that would have been his age died in Bethlehem 
when Herod did the Holocaust of killing two-year-old sons and younger. A lot of his contemporary boys that he would have known had died. He knew the Holocaust of political oppression and warfare. He knew it in his soul. No doubt some of those were cousins. My friends, I want, I, I want to stress this here. And, and uh, I often talk to other preachers about this. When we get up to preach the word of God, I'm, and I've said this many times to various people, when I start hearing more about their stories, I have very little idea of what you're going through. I trust the Holy Spirit that he'll take the word and take it to your heart how you need. But young people, kids, men and women, if you know the Lord Jesus, whatever, whatever you are suffering and battling with, Jesus has tasted it. You think of how he was bullied. Did you you realize he was bullied? Read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And watch for the bullies. Watch for the bullies. They're there. Whatever you are dealing with, you can go to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I am struggling. I am battling this. And you can be assured his tenderness toward you is I know what you're talking about I know what you're talking about I'll just add this one too I was thinking about it some of you have gone through the pain of divorce God said he had to write Israel a bill of divorcement because they are unfaithful God knows the pain of divorce. He knows it better and deeper than you even you do. Isn't that amazing? So the writer is saying here, you have a perfect rescuer that came to save you and to bring you safely home through all the sufferings. And I want to... I want to underscore this for a minute that's, I think, important. I was thinking about it as I was getting ready, is that some of you might be from a background, and I knew some of this background way back in my earlier years. And it was around a lot of the churches at that time. And in an attempt to call people to Christ, a trend started, just pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven. Just pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven. That's not the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's almost like Buddha saying, just wrap up this prayer, put it in the wind wheel, and, you'll be, and Buddha will be happy with you. It's like a Muslim saying, just do these seven things and achieve them and Allah will accept you. Just pray. I mean, who wouldn't want to like pray the prayer on the card? I mean, that's all I have to do when I go to heaven? That's not the good news. That's, that's so far away from what he's, being described, what he's describing here. The good news is that Jesus Christ came, identified with sinners, had all of their sin charged to him as he identified with them. This is why he was baptized. 
John says, I shouldn't have to baptize you. He says, no, to fulfill all righteousness, meaning you are baptizing repentant sinners. I am getting baptized to show I'm identified with them. Not doing their sins, but taking their sins upon me. And the Lord Jesus takes the sins charged as if he were Greg Bastion. Took my sins. He's charged with my account. When the Spirit of God opened my eyes to see that, he reconciled me to God and set me right because I put my faith in the one who died on the cross for my sins. I turned from the rebellion, self-centered hostility of my soul to just be for Greg. I repented or turned from that by a work of God's Spirit, not because I'm a noble person. I was 11 years old. And he turned my heart to Christ. And I began to find out more and more what the Spirit of God had turned my heart. I urge you, if, if your hope is, well, I prayed a prayer on a card. Or my grandmother aunt tells me, I prayed that prayer when I was little. That's not the gospel. First John says, there is evidence that occurs in the heart that is changed by Jesus Christ. First John, you just read through, but... There's a a love for God's people. There's a desire to walk with Christ. Uh, There's a joy in having fellowship with Jesus and and the Heavenly Father. There's an awareness that there's truth and error. I mean, all of these become the evidences. You can read through 1 John. You could read through it in 15 minutes, and you could see. He says, we know we've come to know him if. So I want to urge this. This is not about Jesus came, I pray this prayer, and I go to heaven. No, Jesus comes, saves the sinner, unites himself, we are united with Christ, we are in Christ, and now in his devotion to us, he says, I'm going to bring you safely home. Perfect rescuer. Perfect rescuer, rescuer bringing us safely home. Now I'm going to look at verses 11 through 13. For he who sanctifies, but the word sanctify means to set apart. Some of you know this. Um, some of you ladies, you keep a real nice guest room and bathroom, and there's towels hanging there. But your husband is not allowed to use those towels, right? Oh, okay, I hit, I hit a spot there, right? Those are for the guests. What guests? Doesn't matter. They are set apart for the guests. That's the word sanctified. Those towels are sanctified. They are set apart for the guests. Woe is you, buddy. You work on the car and you come in and wash your hands and you reach for that towel. There'll probably be a counseling appointment like Thursday, okay? So that's what the word sanctified means, set apart. He who sanctifies, who sets us apart for God, and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now, it's an interesting kind of statement here. And again, this is identity with Christ. This is union with Christ This is marvelous. He is saying, the one who sanctifies, the one Jesus who sets us apart for God when he saves us, and those of us who have come to Jesus and are set apart, we all belong to the one source, the Heavenly Father. That the Son of God has always been in loving, joyful communion with the Father by the very nature of who he is. And we 
are joined together with him as the adopted children. And ladies, don't let you know, this political climate, I mean, the politically correct climate, it's as well, it says sons. Do you know in most parts of the world, and I would, I would hazard to say probably in a lot of the Muslim cultures too, if you said to a woman, you have the same rights as a son, that would almost be blasphemy. That would be ridiculous. That would be scandalous. So I encourage you ladies, counter to joy, because in God's economy, that means you share the same inheritance even though you're female. That's, that's, you have to look at the whole scripture and see how that picture is portrayed. So it says here, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Why? Because we're united to him. Saying, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. These are all Jesus speaking through the Old Testament prophets. So Jesus is saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. That's Jesus speaking. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Meaning, the Heavenly Father adopted these sinners when he saved them. And he says, I'm giving them to you, Jesus, as your brothers and sisters. What is this point he's aiming at here? He wants to impress upon us that Jesus Christ is the devoted older brother in our church family. Now, I could say in the church, in the family of God, but sometimes we make it so big and huge that we forget it's here. The Lord Jesus is our devoted older brother in this church family. You know, I don't know who comes first on a Sunday morning, but whoever walks through that door first, you're actually here second. Because Jesus is here, drawing his people to himself. This is an amazing statement, three amazing statements, where we see the Lord Jesus. Look at the first one there. It's a quote, verse 12. It's a quote from Psalm 22, where there's the suffering portrayed that's going to come upon Jesus at the cross. And then after his resurrection, he proclaims the name of God to his brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He announces the Father's name to those he saves. That's what he says in John 17. He sings praise with his people in their assemblies. Now, we had worship leaders up here. We had Ben and we had Ethan. But actually, they are leading us in praise on behalf of Jesus who leads us in song to the Heavenly Father's love and grace. He leads us. And right now, I'm preaching to eardrums. Maybe I'm preaching to mental pictures. But you know who's preaching to your heart? Jesus is. He's preaching to your heart. He is declaring the name of his heavenly Father to your heart right now. He's seeking to break through to those of you who don't know Christ yet. He is declaring to you, this is who I am as a Savior. This is the love of the Heavenly Father. Come to me. He's preaching that to your heart. 
And every believer here, he's preaching some way that he wants to transform you further and conform you to his image and build you up in your faith. Look at the, this next quote. This is Jesus speaking, verse 13. I'll put my trust in him. He is saying to us, when I lived on earth, I trusted in the heavenly father. That's an amazing statement. Jesus trusted in the heavenly father. Um, I want to show you this. Take your Bibles and you keep your place there. We'll go back. But go to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's after Hebrews. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was always saying, Father, I trust you in this. He felt the insults. He felt the false accusations. He felt the mockery. He felt the scorn. He felt the rejection. And he said, Father, I entrust myself to you in this. Flip over a page, probably. Chapter 4, verse 19. It's right the last verse before chapter 5. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's go back to Hebrews 2. So Jesus is the one right now who's stirring in us to keep our trust in the Heavenly Father. And also, when we look here, the last part of verse 13, Behold, I and the children God has given me. He is the one who stands with his brothers and sisters in joyful celebration that we are together. James Coates is in prison because, and you might not, you, in Canada, you, may, you might think, well, I don't think he handled that right or whatever. Here's the point. James Coates, Pastor James Coates is in jail. Maybe he's been released now waiting for his trial. But he took a stand. He said, the people of God need to be able to meet together. He understood something crucial about when the believers gather. We don't go to church. Maybe that's what you do. I go to church. No, no, the, he knew they needed to be together. They needed to not be restricted. They needed to be able to fellowship together and hear the voice of Christ and follow Christ's lead as he leads them in praise and worship and to delight in fellowship together. He said, this is crucial. I know we don't naturally think that way and we have to be reminded, but when we are here to hear the word of God, to worship together, to fellowship, to, to sing praises, to pray. Jesus Christ is present in a very special way in this assembly. Every Sunday, the most 
important meeting that goes on across the face of the earth is believers meeting together. Because the king of glory is meeting with his people and assembling with them. I want want you to think about something. I was thinking about this week as I was going through this passage. And I, I don't know that I do it justice. You can meditate on it and ponder it. But how the author is driving home the point. And he's driving this point home to the believers that were wavering and feeling pressure not to be with the fellow believers and uh, there was pressure to just stay by yourselves and to pull away. And he says, listen to who Jesus is as far as the assembly of the believers is concerned. Why is it that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who literally will risk mob attack, loss of job, loss of home, loss of social services, loss of schooling and education, sometimes even loss of children, harassment, arrest, interrogation, imprisonment, torture, and even death and fire bombings, just to meet with fellow believers. Why do they risk all that? They, a lot of those nations, they have smartphones. They could watch a sermon online. They could call a fellow believer and privately talk to them. Why do they risk everything just to be with their fellow believers? I think because they have been refined and they understand when I'm with my fellow believers, Christ is present in a special way in that assembly. They risk it all just to be with their fellow believers. I do predict that day will come for us. Jesus, well, I don't predict. Pardon me. Scratch that. You know what? Daniel, erase that. Okay, so (laughs) I'm quoting who predicted it. Jesus said that day will come sooner or later. And then we'll know, we'll understand. But how important it is that we even understand now how special the assembly is. You know, I was thinking about it. We actually have three assemblies on Sunday morning. Some of you are missing assembly one and assembly three. I watch, and I've seen this in many churches, people come early and they visit and they talk and they encourage each other. People stay after, they visit, they talk, they encourage each other. Those are one and three, and then this one right now is number two. Uh, I was doing an interim pastoral work years ago to another church, nothing around here. And the church was in distress. The leaders were in denial. And, uh, and I was driving about an hour to go preach there. And then one Sunday, Nancy and our daughter Anna, who was 14 or 15 at the time, she came along. And Anna had grown up in a healthy church watching the church life in Christ. And so uh, they were there. I preached. And we had the closing hymn, closing prayer. Everybody picked up their stuff, walked out their doors, went to their cars, and went home. And I never forget, I can still picture, Anna said, Daddy, what's wrong with this church? I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, no one stays after to talk to each other. And um, I just, I want to just stress this, when We're allowing Christ to meet with us. 
He is assembling with us. He's building us up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a devoted pastor during the days of Adolf Hitler, and some of you are familiar with the name, some of you may not be. And he was executed by the Nazis six weeks before the end of the war. He said, I, I never forgot this quote. He said, two believers never speak directly to each other. That was an interesting thing. So, for instance, if after church I'm visiting with Jim Abbott, and he and I are talking to each other, encouraging each other, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, well, you're not actually speaking directly to Jim because Jesus Christ is taking what you're saying and ministering it to Jim's heart. And then when Jim responds, Jesus Christ takes what he is saying and ministers it to my heart. That's how present and powerful and active Jesus Christ is by his Holy Spirit. That even when we're visiting together, we are ministering the grace of Jesus into each other's lives. Boy, that's a lot more than going to church, isn't it? And if I were to ask, I, I, don't, I don't have to because I know hands will go up. If I, if I were to ask, how many of you had a transforming, life-changing moment just because a moment of a conversation with somebody, a fellow believer, hands would be up all over the place? This is Jesus Christ our devoted older brother in our church family, binding our hearts together to him and to one another. And he's saying to the believers that are under pressure, don't take lightly what you're going to lose if you wander away. Isn't that powerful? What a savior. So present with us right now. So glorious, so loving. Now, my heart's appeal today, and many of us, we pray for this regularly, is if you do not know Christ, I hope you can tell the difference. This is not religion. This is knowing Jesus Christ, the Savior. If you do not know Christ, that you would turn to him today as Savior. Talk to me or some believer you respect and trust and say, I, I just realized I don't really know Christ. And make sure you know him before you leave today. And believers, let's not take lightly what happens when we assemble and we're ministered to by the Savior who knows every suffering perfectly in his soul that we have to navigate through with him and each other. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for your dear people. And Father, I pray your spirit will continue to lift our hearts in amazing joy and celebration of this beloved Son and precious Savior, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.